0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared it's a jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if is thinking, you know... I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth?
1: And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but. I want you to give
0: me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive put me in a position I'm will never let true we'll become to to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind.
1: And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't oh, remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in a very high position Yes. Yeah. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 182. Dimitri I'm solid and today we are continuing our series about Palestine but we've come to a big juncture today a massive historical juncture that I'd say probably take up this chapter and the next
2: um, yeah, I mean, we don't actually know how long this three, might take. maybe. yeah, yeah. We're,
1: we're doing a half chapter today. We're yeah, recording we're, about two hours. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we're not recording for as long as we usually do because we uh, we're talking about other things and we uh, didn't start on time. Uh, but you know, whatever, it's coming. But yeah, this is interesting because you may think you know the history of world war 1 or you may not think you know it <laughs> but it's pretty interesting to see it from like a perspective that certainly i think is not often considered in like typical like the sort of american or like even the european historiography of world war 1 like the ottoman angle on it is like i feel like in you know the history books that like you learn like in american high schools about world war 1 and i imagine this is the case for like you know a lot of other like in the anglophone world or just in, in europe in general like, maybe less so in Germany, but the Ottoman part in World War One is, like, very, like, marginalized. It was just, like, assimilated to, like, an anonymous, like, third part of, like the uh axis powers like you almost kind of imagine them as like the evil yeah. henchmen of like the real bad guy you, know? you um, know like
1: when in lord of the rings when they you know get those guys from that are riding elephants to like you know sauron like recruits you know, those like elephant riders from like yeah, the desert kingdom exactly of South. and mean, in fact i'm kind pretty sure of... that's
2: exactly what J.R.R. tolkien was thinking of i'm pretty like, sure it was um, yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, um, well, you know, Tolkien heads rejoice because you know this is the war that I think, uh, to a large degree, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was based on because J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, it's trauma processing
2: the- of being in World War One. I, I think uh, I reread the first. I think I made a mention this on the show, but I reread the first little bit of Lord of the Rings because I was thinking about doing a Lord of the Rings episode, and I was struck by how much it fucking sucks. I think that <laughs> the <laughs> I think that, like, the the Silmarillion might actually be, like, better. I haven't, like, taken a look at that, but I feel like that might actually be, like, what, like, adults who, like, Tolkien, like, are actually, like, into, maybe. But that's, like, me giving them the benefit of the doubt because, like, and I know it's very influential and it would read differently, like, you know, in the 70s, but, like... Reading it now, it's, like, the best part is, like, the uh, the introduction, which is, like, a fake academic, like, treatise on, like, uh, the hobbits and, like, their culture. <laughs> and then, like, after that, it just, it sounds like someone's blog about their D&D campaign. That's, wow, like, what, wow. what are the rings sounds I mean, like, to, you uh, know. But, I mean, I know that, like, you know, what are the rings is in many ways influenced by Tolkien, so it's not really fair. But, I mean, I don't know. I think it sucks. But it, it also what comes through is that's definitely trauma processing about being in World War One. Um, or at least yes. heavily influenced by that experience
1: and that's one thing most people do know about world war one is that uh it was you know probably the biggest trauma factory ever built in human history you know one of the first wars where i feel like even like the notion of like shell shock or what we would later call ptsd kind of came up for there's a little more of a growth in awareness with it partially i think due to the mechanized and industrial yeah. scale horrors and like slaughter of this war. But I think it is really interesting to look at it from the Ottoman angle because it's definitely like the most slept on and kind of under examined. Like it was kind of a side quest of World War I from the most of the European and like American perspectives. And it definitely doesn't get as much play, but the geopolitical consequences of the Arab campaigns and the Ottoman front, you know, in world war one are definitely no less significant than, and arguably in a way perhaps even more like relevant to us today than the great battlefields of, you know, uh, of Ypres or, you know, the champagne offensive or like the, the, what we usually hear about, which is the Western front between Germany and, you know france and the british uh yeah that, and it, it like, with the trench warfare well and, i think
2: the historiography really does adopt that framework of like you know the raiders from like horror dream or whatever you know whatever the hell that is called where like even the people who were like against the war or like who were critical of what they saw as the getting up of world war one or like they, mm-hmm. they saw it as that like it was that the sort of simple-minded muslims were being manipulated this is like where you know i think we're going to talk about this in this episode and probably like in sub in subsequent ones if uh it, it'll it'll be a factor like this is a jihad right this is a declared as a mm-hmm. jihad despite the fact that it was you know the young turk government in charge was very much perceived to be kind of moving away from the islamic identity or at least uh, reforming the islamic identity of the ottoman empire into something different uh they definitely yeah. tried to appeal to islam in order to you know sort of uh, rally the masses against the allied uh forces right and the the colonial powers um the allied colonial powers i mean again like so even people like who i think we'll talk about like uh snook uh, the dutch orientalist and Sus white convert to Islam. <laughs> he criticized, you know, in his in his pamphlet, uh, which was a Holy War made in Germany. He kind of saw these uh, German Orientalists. It's very interesting history, you know, the history of German Orientalism. We talked about this a little bit before, where like that's something that also kind of gets slept on because the mm. coloniality of German Orientalism is, I think, maybe because uh, Edward Said himself, as I think we mentioned in an earlier episode, didn't really get into it. So it's kind yeah. of like not really like, but. He was, you know, very uh, Hrongzi, this Dutch Orientalist who is sus in his own way. And Dutch Orientalism and German Orientalism are kind of uh, intertwined in, in uh, very, very, two very interesting case studies in the history of, of Orientalism or sort of knowledge production about Islam in the Euro-American sphere. But I mm-hmm. digress a little bit. My point is that yeah, he criticized, you know, German Orientalists for like being a party to manufacturing this jihad, which, of course, you know, the, the Muslim hordes had no choice but to comply with. But yeah. actually, like, this didn't really have, like, the, you know, this rallying effect that was hoped for. You know, the sort of Germans who had kind of read these books of, like, classical Islamic law and everything. And even, you know, the Ottomans themselves or the, uh, the, you know, the young Turks kind of maybe cynically thought that it might have some effect. But I think the Germans especially were very hopeful that this cry for jihad would, you know, rally the Muslims uh, to, to the sides of uh, the yeah. central powers. But it didn't really work out that way. In fact, and, one could say hmm. the opposite happened.
1: Well, yeah, and also, like, under potentially undermine uh, some of the colonial possessions of the Entente powers of, you know, Britain and France. Exactly. By basically, under the assumption that if you make a call uh, to jihad, then that would help foment uprisings in places like Sudan or India, which had significant Muslim populations. And also something that really, though... You know, the German intelligence operatives certainly tried. I don't think it really panned out the way they, you know, had hoped. But they put a lot of, they did put, I guess, uh, quite a bit of effort into, yeah, trying to, like, utilize, like, the, you know, the call to jihad. And then even the call to jihad itself, there were some interesting aspects of it in relation to, like, politics within the ottoman empire which we'll probably get to a little bit later but you know the arab revolt and the uh sharif of mecca hussein who declined for various political reasons interesting political reasons to like actually formally you know join the call of jihad i think his excuse was that he was in a vulnerable position to british attacks and so you know out of like prudence, even though privately, you know, he totally supported the jihad in public, you know, he, he just had to, but in fact there are much more complex political reasons why, you know, there are games going on by this time, uh, which we will get to, which this is where the narrative, like everything we've been talking about so far, so much rubber hits the road in this yeah. like five year period of world war one, which I think is why we took our time, kind of laying the context and all the decades leading up to it and the various powers and, you know, developments. Because to just drop right into this conflict makes it even more confusing and bewildering than I think it already is. And this is, I think I've already said, you know, a real... Like, I can see why people get kind of, like, obsessed with World War One Because it is such a complex, multifaceted war that also has such ambiguous, like, reasons and motivations behind it and such a grayness to all the sides and kind of like a really hardcore, a real, like a, a scary real politique kind of aspect to it that if, if you want to hold up a war that just makes war look bad, you know, World War One is pretty perfect for it because... If you want to make a uh, a Lou Hill pacifist argument, like World War One's a pretty good example of just like the madness, the insanity. Blah, 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 especially of modern warfare. And, you know, this wasn't maybe technically the first modern war, but it was, you know, certainly it was the first world war. It was
2: huge. Yeah. And I think that. Oh, Oh, Sorry.
1: And yeah, it was the mass adoption of all these technologies across almost like every front that, you know, changed the nature of warfare and allowed for it to become almost exponentially more deadly and destructive than wars that had come before it.
2: Yeah, and I think that, like, from, you know, particularly we talk about looking from the Ottoman side, but, like, even from, like, the Palestinian angle or from the Arab uh, angle, like, from the perspective of... You know the uh, Eastern uh, Arab world. I think that the, like a lot of images of like the Europeans like were kind of shattered by this. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. there was this kind of myth that had been built up of these like advanced like. You know, of course, not everyone bought into these things, but it was a lot easier to buy into it like before World War One, I, I think. You know, it was a lot easier to admire, even if they were, like, brutally colonizing you or, like, kind of being, like, cynically, like, yeah. you know, preying upon, like, your country's economy or, you know, your your polity's economy or whatever. You know, you, you could buy into it, but, but, but like, seeing... I think actually someone who put it in in good terms was uh, Rashid Radeh, who we talked about a little before, as mm-hmm. someone who, you know, uh, actually uh, believed in the innocence of Dreyfus when uh, even Theodore Herzl thought he was guilty, <laughs> but eventually became... <laughs> Definitely, like a, a big sort of alarmist about uh, you know someone who sounded the alarm about about Zionism, uh, kind of mm-hmm. tipping into maybe a little bit of a uh, of anti-Semitism. I think is the pretty much the the consensus on Rida, but still an, an interesting and influential Arab intellectual of this period. And he had some interesting thoughts about uh, World War One that kind of uh, put it in front of. I think. Um, this is from uh, an article uh, that kind of uh, summarizes his, his reflections on the war. Uh, who's the author of this article? Uh, Umar Riyadh. It's called Rashid Rida's Perceptions of the First World War. After the outbreak of the war, Rada thought that there were other reasons for the Great War than the political official version released by European states and Russia regarding its causes. The primary reason was the European and Russian fervor and competition in attaining world dominance. Russia aimed at increasing its international supremacy by annexing the Slavic peoples in the Balkans and Austria, whereas Germany hoped to impose its supreme authority not only on Europe but worldwide. Therefore, Germany organized its land and sea forces in such advanced ways according to natural sciences and military techniques. Britain's competition with the Germans in building navies was due to Britain's keen desire to preserve a supreme sea power in its colonies. On the other hand, France extended its colonies at the cost of weakening Muslim North Africa and its treasures by agitating for internal conflict and wars. The French were shrewd enough to increase the deployment of foreign troops to defend France in lieu of exposing their youth to die during the war. For Redet, such great nations in terms of science, industry, wealth, and civilization were determined to spend hundreds of millions of what they had sucked from the wealth of the colonized peoples. European powers were going to quote shed the blood, and destroy the civilization of those people simply for the sake of their greed and love for supremacy on Earth, despite their camouflage of consolidating peace by means of war. Ooh,
1: fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, that that kind of bumps up against like another aspect, which like I felt myself while watching more like World War One stuff, just thinking about it as like, folks, this is a mass ritual. Like yeah. this is just like a death factory of like colonial insanity like on a mass like global scale of just throwing hundreds of thousands of young men into like this like meat grinder for the most marginal of like you know strategic gains or anything else like just using masses of people as pawns in like this big chess game that was supposed to be I think at the beginning of the war, there was all this optimism that somehow this was going to be like a scientific war or uh, this is really yeah. a modern war, like right. a modern a surgical war.
2: operation. uh uh-huh. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it was in a way, uh-huh. uh, but like in a vivisection type way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It ended up being pretty fucking medieval, like at the end of the day. And, you know, people were rolling out you know, like whether it was different tactics they had developed in the colonial forces. I was thinking it's a little bit like the sort of like pre-October 7th view of like the IDF versus the post, where I think like the invincibility of this force was kind of shattered because they'd kind of been picking on people that couldn't fight back for like a couple of decades. And, you know, like it was easy to like project this kind of modern, technologically advanced like... You know kind of a image upon them but then you know when planning military planning like meets up with reality that's when you find out whether or not like how much it's really worth and i think what they found out was that like a lot of these armies very early in the war found out that various kind of tactics they had relied on or something were like dangerously outdated and just led to like 30,000 of their soldiers getting, like, mowed down with machine guns, like, in a field, like, when yeah. the, I think the French in their early battles were still rocking their, like, bright, like, royal blue suit, you know, from, like, the mid-19th century, and still marched, like, in formation, like, Revolutionary War style, you know, in these, like, dense columns, and, like, the Germans just, like, relentlessly, like, artilleryed and, like, machine gunned them all to death, <laughs> like, and they were like, oh. I guess we have to change our uniforms and our tactics and like everything else and the, and then things just escalated from there. I think another thing that people thought in the beginning that this is going to be a very short war. And as more and more countries joined it, like in the first maybe six months, like there was a, I think a widespread, there was a lot of excitement and an incitement as well in all the various countries, you know, for various justifications to, to jump in, to tag in and, and join the fight. Um, and then they all found themselves in like extremely fucked up like stalemate situations that these leaders, and I think it should be mentioned that, you know, in, in the cases of some of these empires, we're talking about people who are literally cousins, right? Yeah. Tsar Nicholas, and uh, let me see. I think we had Kaiser Wilhelm Kaiser Wilhelm II, the leader of the German Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had, uh, let's get a rundown of our, our big boys. King uh, the,
2: George was related, right?
1: King George, I believe, is related to the Romanovs. Yeah. Because a and lot to of these people Wilhelm of Germany, I guess, by extension. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. No, they called, I think Nicholas and Nicholas II and Wilhelm would write each other letters like they were cousins and they were pretty close and they would sign it like Nicky and Vili. You know, <laughs> so like crazy. they were pretty tight. These yeah. people and again, like, the the fact that, like, all these people, including, like, the SPD in Germany, the Hecken uh, Democratic Socialist Party, you know, basically came around to, like, endorsing this call for, you know, endorsing their nation's call to arms to join the army and, you know, fight whoever they were fighting— um is pretty it's just some sicko shit, basically, that these interrelated monarchs, I think a lot of them were grandchildren of Queen Victoria of Great Britain. And, you know, so they through intermarriage, they were all basically related and this is,
2: yeah i'm reading about the willy nicky correspondence right now this is yeah, truly yeah. insane this is like not just uh-huh. like that they did that at one point this was in the midst of like the lead up to world war one they're like please yeah, remove yeah, the troops yeah. from the border like love nicky yeah
1: like, yeah yeah yeah. like it was all in the game talk about class solidarity you know uh and, wow uh, and i yeah. think that's why you know one of the many history shifting developments of this war is there was a uh, there was one short king, one bald little goateed short king who I think called it pretty on the money, like right when this war started, talking, of course, about Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who was in exile in Switzerland when all this started, who I think called out the SPD and like the Mensheviks and, you know, other other groups like that, other heckin socialist groups um, around Europe who had joined Their, you know, their nation's call to like go into arms and basically said this is all bullshit. Like this is a bunch of like cousins and like capitalist interests like fighting to divvy up the world, you know, into their various dominions. And what people really should do instead of joining the army is like rise up against all these inbred fucking sickos and overthrow their governments and, you know, uh, do it, do a real socialism. But that was like a minority view at the, the beginning of the war. Surprisingly, people kind of went along with this. In a big way. I mean, there was a shitload of propaganda. So it's pretty it's dark. And I mean, I guess maybe there's a little cosmic justice in here because uh, several empires, you know, wouldn't make it out of this war. Basically, you know, this this war ended up killing off a few empires that had been around uh, for centuries. You know, including Austria-Hungary and, of course, the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Of course, like, the question was not exactly finished after that because we had a sequel 20 years later. But, hmm, let me see. So, I'm trying to think of, like, any other context we could provide to maybe just the war itself before we start talking about the specific Ottoman front and how they got sucked into it and just... Because I... I, I think, like I had mentioned, maybe in the past episode or two, like you know, I sort of vaguely know like what was up with World War One, but then, like the actual events that got everybody sucked into it, and the sort of immediate backstory is a little more fuzzy. So maybe I just want to like clear that up uh-huh. uh, because I think it'll be helpful context when we're talking about just the Ottomans, uh, mm-hmm. because they have to deal with all these different powers in different ways, and everybody's kind of got their eye on the Ottoman Empire as like this is the time to. Finally, make our move and chop it up, and that thing that we've been talking about every episode up to this, where the Europeans were planting their seeds and biding their time, waiting for the right day to come. Well, you know, this is basically where that moment presents itself. So, what do we know about World War One? Well, we know that Archduke Franz Ferdinand um, yeah. of the Austria-Hungary Empire, I guess, the heir to the throne not yet the uh, the emperor, yeah. but, right. you know, on his way was assassinated on June 28th, 1914 in Sarajevo by a Bosnian Serb um, named Gavrilo Princip, uh, who was part of a conspiratorial nationalist Serb organization called the Black Hand. And that, you know, is seen, like, the shot that was heard around the world, like, that's kind of what started everything. But, I mean, there's a lot more kind of going on with that and that actually is one of those weird there's almost like a dracularity to it of like that assassination plot probably shouldn't have even worked apparently i think here's what apparently here's what happened on the day that Franz Ferdinand died he had been warned that there was a lot of like serb because of course you know at this time bosnia was still under the control they had rested away uh, Bosnia Herzegovina and Croatia from the Ottoman Empire, I believe in 1908, like a, a few years before World War One, And then, of course, like Serbia had achieved its independence from the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. And there were, of course, a lot of ethnic Serbs in Bosnia Herzegovina, a problem, you know, an issue that would recur at the end of the 20th century, too. So there was a lot of agitation basically to, uh, declare the independence of this region and like rebel against Austria, Hungary. And then of course there were also like the Balkan Wars in the couple years leading up to uh, World War One. But Basically, the he decides to go down there anyways, uh, Franz Ferdinand, to visit Sarajevo, and he's warned that there might be like threats on his life. I guess the day he died, he's going around. And somebody throws a bomb, like kind of like a hand grenade, at his car, but it bounces off the windshield and like blows up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it injures to a couple of his like guards, so they get taken to a hospital, and then he goes whatever meeting he's going to do, and then when he's leaving, he asks his driver to take a different route so he can stop by the hospital and visit, like, the guards that were wounded. So they actually take, like, a different route, and the black hand had posted assassins at various bridges and sort of intersections around the city. And so this young guy, Giver Princip, who was, I think, just, like, maybe a teenager, like, not a very experienced, like, soldier or anything like that, just happened to be chilling at one of these bridges and i think they got turned around or they, they came up to some kind of roadblock or some point and Franz Ferdinand told his driver to stop and like figure out you know what direction they need to go in. and they happened to stop right in front of governor princip and he looked at them and pulled out his revolver and you know killed the archduke and his wife right there so that led to like the one big precipitating factor was basically Austria-Hungary freaks out, you know, right? Like, their, their Archduke has been assassinated by the Serbs, and they blame Serbia, and then they issue Serbia a, basically, like, a, an ultimatum list of what they demand, and, you know, they, they want justice, you know, to be done, blah, blah, blah. But one of the provisions is, like, they want the investigation in Serbia for, like, the conspirators. To be like overseen by Austria Hungary and basically like violate their sovereignty, which Mm -hmm. apparently they knew Serbia would not accept. But they kind of wanted, there were forces within the Austria, the Austro Hungarian leadership that actually wanted to like invade and take it back because also Serbia was backed by Russia. And so they were an outpost of Russian tsarist influence in the balkans so this was like an opportunity to kind of you know launch a military campaign against serbia so predictably this sort of deal was rejected by the serbs and then austria hungary declares war on serbia that triggers the first kind of tag in where i think due to a treaty that serbia and russia had russia you know decides to come to their defense and so that results in tada the german empire and the russian empire are now at war and then it sort of starts devolving from there because there were these alliances, right? The yeah. the Entente and the Triple Alliance. Right. That's the, that's the rough battle lines of this, right? It's important to
2: note, yeah, like, after all that, like, we talked about, all of that, like, concern and, like, hand over Russia, all of that, like, effort to kind of, like, yeah. remold and prop up, like, the Ottoman Empire, like, in order to, to check Russia. Like, in a, like strangely like minor like twist just a couple of years for the outbreak of world war one like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden this entente emerged where like now russia france and great britain are all friends and like that is reading all about like the eastern question and all that stuff it almost makes it seem like that was really the trigger that like you know caused this to happen is like the fact that that alliance kind of shifted because it seemed like that was kind of like what was keeping the balance of power like as it was for like you know in this unstable way for a while it was all about like oh you know we can't let russia grow in power can't let it get to india etc cetera, etc cetera. but also we have to like slowly pick apart the ottoman empire and then suddenly like russia is now our ally uh you know from the french and, and british perspective so Let's just fucking go ham. Like, let's just, you know, finally, like, solve this Eastern question once and for all. Yeah, it's pretty
1: wild, actually. Because, yeah, you're right. Every episode we've done so far, it's, like, only British people talking about this is all great game era. Like, the perfidious Russian bear has to be contained, blah, blah, blah. And then we kind of, from the 1890s up through, I think, 1907 is when the Triple Entente was officially the Anglo-Russian Convention or the convention between the United Kingdom and Russia relating to Persia, Afghanistan, and Tibet. Which I think kind of like settled yeah. some of the, the beef of like the great game in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. And also, we had talked a little bit, I think, last time about the increasing German investment in the Ottoman Empire. Yes. You know, the building of like the Hejaz, the Hejaz railway, railway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and pilgrimage routes to, to Mecca and Medina. Which Germany like
2: owned parts of, like they owned parts of like the, the railway route, uh, which, mm-hmm. yeah. Rashid Radeh, again, had a great comment about that, which was that, like, okay, well, this is supposed to be the heart of the Empire. This is a great, like, initiative, but how can anyone live? I think, you know, his exact uh, words were like, how can a person live when their heart is in the hands of another? You know, Mm. like... So. He who
1: controls the infrastructure controls, you know, yeah. the imperium a little bit. And Germany's of course love also, of trains
2: could not be yeah, suppressed. Germany's they had trains, to like have their the, hands on the lever, uh, you know, the the railway lever. Yeah, the grandparents
1: um, of all the guys from Craftwork were down yeah. there just building train lines and uh, loving it. Yeah, they're truly a piece. This so, is a
2: digression, but I learned the other day that there's like a, by the same guy who wrote the musical Cats, there's a musical that's basically Cats with trains called Starlight Whoa. Express. And there's an entire thing. <laughs> Theater in Germany that's dedicated just to performing this musical. It is like the has the Guinness World Record <laughs> for the most performed musical like in a single place. Like the cats with trains, like they love it. They just love oh it. Oh my so god, much. they love it. Um, they're yeah. so
1: efficient. They're always on time. Yeah, they're, just, they're on it's a grid. Great. It's just it's perfect. It's so great. It's yeah, trains. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so so that was something that eventually gave uh, Great Britain. I think we read a quote last time that like you know Great one of the ministers kind of saying like Great Britain is tolerated for far too long. This like, you know, this alliance between German interests and the Ottoman empire, like this is a danger to us. And also I think Kaiser Wilhelm was like on a kind of clout quest to build up the German Navy so yeah. that it could challenge the dominance of the British Navy, which was the you know most powerful in the world back then. So that was another area of, you know, these uh, two forces coming into and also Germany was increasing its general colonialism in places like Africa and in Tsingdao where the in China where the beer uh, actually comes from I think it was that was like a German brewery in Tsingdao that then uh, the Chinese like took uh, in a based way Uh, but yeah so you could see like there was a growing you know friction uh, between these two empires and then you know eventually they realized that russia is not actually you know once they settled their deal in 1907 and i guess there was also the agadir crisis in morocco when french troops were deployed in 1911 and germany basically threatened to uh yeah bomb the french troops from the sea let's see it stirred up a bunch of german nationalism sir lloyd george is involved in that but another another aspect that the germans were nervous about russia with is that Russia, although probably the most economically backward country in Europe at that, or, you know, empire in Europe at that time, was starting to industrialize more and more. And uh, I think it was the belief of some of the German, you know, leadership that you kind of had to, like, fight your war with Russia soon. Because once they caught up industrially to where Germany and the UK were at, or even got close, that they would be, they're just too big of a country and you can't, you never basically be able to throw their weight around. Of course, they always had their eye. The Russians did on uh, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to get back uh, parts of the Ottoman Empire there. Yeah, and um, had their proxies kind of in Serbia. So there was a there was a lot of anxiety. I think God, Austria Hungary. Who is the psychotic, I don't know, either Minister of War, is it von Hutzendorf, I think? Uh, let me just look that up real quick. Uh, yeah,
2: I didn't read too much about like the larger theater of World War I, uh, not as much as you did, uh, so I don't recall.
1: One thing that some historians have kind of commented is that even though Franz Ferdinand was kind of like a piece of shit, and like a huge kind of ultra-conservative monarchist, that he was the most kind of reticent or worried about going to war with Russia... Of all of the leadership and actually by killing him, the black hand sort of removed like the one voice that, you know, maybe had enough clout to prevent a war breaking out with Serbia, which then, you know, kicked off uh caused like a chain reaction that, you know, kicked off all this other shit. So, you know, with him out of the way, then I think it was uh uh von Hutzendorf who was like fiending for a war against Serbia already and then got like their Casas belly when Franz Ferdinand was killed. So then, yeah, there was the July crisis when there was a lot of diplomatic meeting, and that's when they issued this ultimatum to Serbia. Yeah, Serbia mobilized its troops. They started shelling Belgrade, Austria-Hungary, in uh, July, and Russia mobilized in support of Serbia on July 30th. Then Germany started preparing for war pretty quickly, and basically they, they told Russia to, like, stop basically supporting serbia and like Mm -hmm. stay out of it and remain neutral the french started mobilizing right at the end of july oh that's what it was the schlieffen plan which is a plan that yeah that field marshal alfred von schlieffen uh, from germany had already kind of cooked up for a future potential war with france which involved going around belgium and then they would once they defeated france they would turn around and fight russia which is it's funny like how similar it is to like exactly what happened in World War II also that this like mm-hmm. kind of thing like repeated itself almost verbatim like in this case you know they had I think in World War II you had the Maginot line in France mm-hmm. and the Nazi strategy was just to go around by invading the Netherlands and Belgium just like go around this hugely fortified border and then just invade them which actually worked in World War II but in World War 1 not exactly so well so they they eventually like because france and russia are allied germany decides that it's basically going to uh declare war on france and they're going to use the schlieffen plan to invade but then they have to go through belgium belgium has a treaty with great britain where if it is ever invaded the british will declare war on whoever that is so then the british who have their own reasons for kind of getting into this war decide that they're going to honor their treaty obligations to belgium under the 1839 treaty of london and you know stick with their triple entente allies france and russia So, yeah, uh, let's see. German ultimatum to Russia expires on August 1st, 1914. That's when they, you know, became uh, officially at war and opening hostilities. Yes, the Serbian campaign happens and the Germans invade through Belgium. And that's actually a big deal early in the war is like the so-called rape of Belgium. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read about this at all, but this is the idea that this is where a lot of people got it in their minds that the Germans were like the bad guys and mm-hmm. were worse than the other people in the war. Because I guess I guess in some cases the Germans did go through and uh, summarily execute civilians uh, who resisted them. And they did things that would kind of be repeated in World War II, though not in it doesn't seem like anywhere on as organized of a scale. Of like if you know a group of German soldiers were ambushed they'd go into the local village and like kill 50 people in retaliation kind of thing so some of these stories came came out and they were seized upon by British propagandists very early on that was like defend the rape of Belgium you know yeah. and kind of using this like responsibility to protect kind of language
2: Yeah, the same kind of yeah mm-hmm.
1: to yeah. get sucked into that so then that's when they put together the British expeditionary force which I guess was the the best trained army in europe at the time like the most professional one because they had been overseas in the colonies fighting you know various wars so they were seen as the most professional kind of army and uh they you know land in france and to help out the french who are getting kind of like a little bit wrecked um like i said they they started off marching into battle with, like, bright blue, like, fancy uniforms Mm -hmm. in just, like, open formations through an open field with, like... I don't even know if they had artillery support at that point. But the German artillery, this is the first introduction to, like, the rudeness of modern warfare of just wiping out... uh, Let me see. The Battle of the Frontiers, which I think was an early battle, French casualties exceeded 260,000 people, including 75,000 dead. That's just one battle early on on August 22nd. So oh cuz sorry in one day basically maybe two days 260,000 casualties. Mm-hmm. Like that that is a scale that I don't think had ever been really seen before, right? So there's already early signs that this war is going to be a little different than the uh, romantic Europeans kind of think it is, right? Yes. These are a lot of older men who have like 19th century mentalities that are running this war, that are using these old school styles of, you know, strategies and tactics that due to things like machine guns, artillery and early airplanes and like railroad networks and things like that, you know, the ability to move supply chains for Armies like is totally that's one thing apparently that Austria Hungary found out real early going into the Balkans is they had these really shitty single track railroads that went into you know Sarajevo and uh, mm. to Belgrade and stuff that could only go like 10 miles per hour. And Mm -hmm. were like incredibly inefficient. And so they had like a nightmare, the early parts of the war, because they're because so it's like infrastructure becomes a huge thing of like how fast can you move your troops forward, but also keep the supplies going to them. And I guess that was a big advantage for Russia because they had invested a ton in railroads in like the opening of the 20th century that they were often able to like move their troops around very fast and you know, all this other stuff. So uh so yeah so all, all these different new dynamics at play the british expeditionary force goes in then uh, i mean yeah. the, the, there's stuff on the e- there's stuff even in like east asia like like the japanese attack the german colony of uh, colony of singdao mm-hmm. and i think eventually take it over um, and uh, See that's something you don't even hear about. Like I didn't even realize like the, the the Japanese and Germans were like on different sides, in, you know World yeah. War One. And then uh, a lot of uh, troops were called up. Uh, the British Indian Army was a big deal, right? In uh in especially actually in the Ottoman front of you know just taking huge armies of like Indian subjects and yeah. bringing them over to fight uh you know in the the other theaters. And that's also of course something that the the jihad would be designed to kind of try to undermine right because that, there were a lot of back then this is before pakistan broke off so this is like a huge population of muslims in you know yeah. the raj right yeah um that
2: was yeah the whole like uh ottoman jihad thing was interesting yeah there's a lot uh, about that to, to talk about but for that i did like just relative to what you were just saying there's this one other great part from uh radez comments in uh his journal uh al-manar where he kind of wrote about this uh, reflected on the war um there's this one just great uh, part that he has where um i'll just read this, this summary of it in radez metaphoric words the world of civilization resembled an idolatry temple where a statue of military power was erected putting one foot in the truth while the other rested on values raising with the right hand the banner of dominance and authority and with the left the banner of desire and lust people were divided between these two poles Those prostrating or kneeling to the statue, and those burning incense or providing offerings to the idols. Instead of changing science into a source of human happiness, justice, and mercy, the quote-unquote civilized world of Europe made it a source of cruelty, injustice, and misery. As for Germany, it had exploited its wide knowledge and mastery of arts to invent, quote-unquote, instruments of destruction and death. Ritter was shocked by the news about uh, Germany's unbelievably destructive cannons and submarines, and the toxic gas producing green smoke that was fatal to human beings. Radeh interpreted these new inventions as light of the Quranic verse, watch for a day when the sky will bring a visible smoke covering the people. This is a painful torment. Um, no.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, written. you can always, no. yeah, read, yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah, the Quran always seems to resonate with uh, these world events. You know, there's always like, uh, you know, that's, that's interesting about the the character of it. And like, you know, the uh, prophecies about the end times, they always seem to be uh, mm-hmm. relevant to, to things that we're observing. But yeah, you know, he uh, just criticized the uh, this war, which Europeans propagated as civilizational, is nothing but a clear-cut indication of the beastly, beastly and elusive materialist character of European civilization. Uh, in contrast to their assertion of loving truth, values, peace, and justice. But yeah, yeah no,
1: it, it's it's it definitely was that. It definitely yeah. was that. It exposed, in, I think, a lot of the highfalutin, uh, quote-unquote, you know, European values to be
2: yeah uh, and something that
1: more grotesque and hypocritical
2: and that or at least uh, various permutations of that are basically the reason why this kind of call to jihad didn't really resonate in the way that that was hoped yeah. there's one a...
1: reason was that they were fighting in a line. once they did join the war i'll talk about that in a second but uh once they did join the war it was a little bit contradictory to be like come join the jihad that we're fighting with a bunch of christian powers against other yeah, christian powers exactly. it was like uh, yeah mm-hmm. okay
2: and, yeah and i believe that actually was the argument that was yeah a lot of people made made that i think that even the uh the sheikhs who uh you know were kind of in league with sharif hussein they made a, a similar argument that like well you know this is a christian power that we'd be aligned with so it doesn't really <laughs>
0: i <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: there's an interesting episode we want to talk about uh, how did the ottomans get sucked into this cuz it starts you know you know the united states doesn't get involved till uh true to form till like the fourth quarter they like come in and like dunk on everybody you know like yeah we won the war right. but you know at this at this point a couple once we get to the the so-called guns of august that book written by morganthau that is when you know we have the triple entente of england russia and france and also serbia basically are you know fighting against the german empire and the austro-hungarian empire but the ottomans you know even though they have they've really been developing you know the young turks who we should remind everybody were trained by german officers right all the the Mm -hmm. entire leadership of like the cup that did the coup against uh, abdul hamid these guys were uh you know, very heavily influenced by, like, their, you know, their German trainers, right? And uh, were arguably, like, kind of Germanophiles. Uh, and definitely, you know, there was a lot of, like, infrastructure development, trade development, etc. But they didn't automatically jump into the war, the Ottomans, you know, right after it started. This is yeah. something that had to be kind of... You had to sort of uh, massage this into being. And one interesting episode in that 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 precipitated the ottomans getting involved with something called the black sea raid in yeah. october 1914 which exactly I think, yeah. do we have a consensus of whether or not it was like a false flag because um, i've heard both things from it basically i don't
2: know if it was a false well what do you mean by false flag explain like the false flag theory uh, well that it
1: was like, essentially german ships uh, yes. flying an ottoman flag that mm-hmm. shelled uh a russian port basically yeah i forget I, okay. if it was sevastopol where they did that
2: yes mm-hmm. i have heard yeah. that i've also heard that like the ottoman fleet like it wasn't just like a false flag but like there actually were some ottoman ships there but it was like kind of like the germans sort of strong-armed them into doing this like basically they were ordered like to do this by the germans like, you've gotta do this and like it was mostly like the german cruisers that were actually in this bombardment but, I mean, at least, you know, the Ottomans seem to be, or at least the Ottoman leadership seemed to be complicit in it. Like, they weren't necessarily, like, you know, taken uh, off guard by it. But it wasn't really, like, an entirely Ottoman operation. That was the sense that I got. Um, it was, like, primarily, you know, the Ottomans were heavily implicated, but...
1: Um, yeah, and I think the it, it gets a little, like, fuzzy because then the ships that were... That that launched the attack were like then kind of like integrated into the Ottoman Navy, but I think they're originally German ships. Mm-hmm. I'm just reading the like the Wikipedia summary of this uh, incident. That hmm, okay, yeah, there's going to be so much political intrigue coming up here. But let me see what the source is for these. A book by McMeekin, The Berlin Baghdad Express, uh, from 2012, Harvard University. All right, it says that uh, it summarizes in the months before the outbreak of World War One. Officials of the Ottoman Empire vainly tried to secure an alliance with a great power. The Germanophile Ottoman war minister, Enver Pasha, directly proposed an alliance on July 22, 1914, to the German ambassador in Istanbul, Hans Freiherr von Wangenheim, but -hmm. he was rebuffed. Kaiser Wilhelm II overruled Wangenheim two days later, and and an Ottoman draft for an alliance was delivered in Berlin on July 28, the day World War I began. The July crisis had climaxed, and it appeared Germany would be fighting a two-front war with France and Russia. With the Germans hesitant to make any more significant military obligations, Wangenheim was authorized by German Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann Hollweg to sign the agreement only if the Ottoman Empire would, quote, undertake action against Russia worthy of its name. (laughs) So there we go. On August 1st, Enver offered Wangenheim the new battleship, Sultan Osman uh, Ievel, Evel, I guess, in exchange for German protection. This was likely a clever ploy. UK officials, in order to bolster the Royal Navy to wage war against Germany, had already seized Sultan Osman Ievel and the battleship Rechadier, which were under construction in their shipyards. Wangenheim and the majority of the Ottoman government were unaware of this. Enver probably already knew the seizure, since actually releasing the battleship to a foreign nation would have caused an uproar from the public and the government. Ambassador Wagenheim signed the treaty the next day, creating the secret Ottoman-German alliance. However, the alliance did not automatically bring the Ottomans into the war as Germany had hoped. The literal wording of the treaty obligated Germany to oppose any foreign infringements on Ottoman territory, particularly by Russia, but only required that the Ottoman Empire assist Germany as per the latter's own terms with Austria-Hungary. Since Germany had proactively declared war on Russia several days before Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire was not compelled to join the conflict. Grand Vizier Saeed Halim Pasha and Finance Minister Javid Bey were opposed to Ottoman involvement in the war and viewed the alliance as a passive agreement. Other Ottoman officials were hesitant to rush into an armed conflict following the disastrous First Balkan War, which was uh, October 1912 to May 1913, um, especially considering the possibility that the Balkan states might attack the empire should it become belliger- belligerent. So then, meanwhile, the German battlecruiser SMS Gubben and the light cruiser SMS Breslau were cruising off French Algeria, Let me see. Interesting. Okay, no, the the ships were integrated in the Ottoman Navy before the attack. I'm sorry. Yeah, and not after. So you can see right there, the thing is like, oh, well, if the Ottoman Empire is like attacked by, you know, Russia, like basically Germany is obligated to oppose any foreign infringements on Ottoman territory. So basically like declare war kind of Mm -hmm. if the Ottoman Empire is attacked. But, you know, they sort of need Russia to attack the Ottoman Empire, which it had not uh, done yet. So, prelude. All right. In a discussion over the weekend of September 12th and 13th, so right around 9-11, Enver gave uh, Sushan permission to take his ships into the Black Sea to uh, perform maneuvers. The Ottoman naval minister, Ahmed Jamal, discovered Sushan's plans. um, Let me see. Hold on. Sushant. What were his plans? Okay. Admiral Wilhelm Suchan, which who was a German admiral, was hanging out by French Algeria, holding his position to interfere with the Triple Entente troop convoys. And he received orders that his ships should retreat to Ottoman waters, but he chose to linger for one day and shell two ports. It had already been arranged on August 1st the German, uh, between Germans and Enver that Sushan's squadron would be allowed safe passage. While coaling in Messina, Sushan received a telegram rescinding these orders, as other Ottoman officials, now learning of Enver's deal, objected to the plan. But despite this, Sushan resolved to continue towards the Ottoman Empire, having concluded that an attempt to return to Germany would result in his ship's destruction at the hands of the British and French and withdrawal to the Austro-Hungarian coast would leave them trapped in the Adriatic Sea for the remainder of the war. So he's being chased by the British Royal Navy. He went east, feigning a retreat uh, towards Austria-Hungary to confuse the British. Austrian ships try to tra- uh, try to chase him. Let's <laughs> see. So I think these guys ended up in the Black Sea, like running away from. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. No, the the Austro-Hungarian fleet went south in a ruse to make it look like they were rendezvousing with Sushan to confuse the British, and like throw them off the scent. So Sushan finally approached the Ottoman Empire, which had still not authorized his ship's entry to its waters. He decided to force the issue and dispatched a support vessel to Istanbul with a message for the German naval attache to give to the Ottomans. He needed immediate passage through the Dardanelles. On the grounds of military necessity, it was prepared to enter them without formal approval. So he got permission the day before. The Ottoman government had proposed to Wangenheim that a fictitious purchase of the German ships be arranged, so their presence would not compromise Ottoman neutrality. Okay, so they're trying to keep up this like ruse of neutrality. The next day, the German chancellor cabled Wangenheim, rejecting the idea and demanding that the Ottomans immediately join the war. The Grand Vizier accosted Wangenheim for the premature arrival of the ships and repeated the demand for a fictitious sale. The Ottoman government subsequently declared that it had purchased both ships for 80 million German marks. On August 14th, Wangenheim advised the German government that it would be best to go along with the sale, lest they risk angering the Ottomans. On August 16th, they were formally integrated into the Ottoman navy, while their crews were given new uniforms and formally re-enlisted. The British had thought this action was meant to counterbalance their seizure of the Ottoman battleships, but this was not strictly the case. The Ottomans feared the Entente, particularly Russia, would attempt to partition the empire if they won the war, whereas Germany and Austria-Hungary would not. Once the British became aware of this, they feared that the Ottomans were more likely to enter the conflict in Germany's favor. Following Russia's failures in its operations against Germany in late August, Russian incursion in Ottoman territory seemed unlikely. Meanwhile, the Ottoman officials reached neutrality agreements with the governments of Greece and Romania, while Bulgaria displayed pro-German tendencies, alleviating their fears of a Balkan threat. Enver then began to move his defensive policy towards an aggressive one. So over the weekend, now back to where we are, over the weekend of uh, September 12th, Enver gave Sushan, the German admiral, permission to take his ships into the Black Sea to perform maneuvers. The Ottoman naval—it's Min- always an exercise, isn't it? The yeah. Ottoman naval minister Ahmed Jamal discovered Sushan's plans and strictly forbade him from moving out of the Bosphorus. The Ottoman cabinet debated the matter over the next few days, and on September 17th, Enver told Sushan that his authorization to operate in the Black Sea was quote withdrawn until further notice. Furious, Sushan went ashore the next day and berated Grand Vizier Halim for his government's faithless and indecisive behavior, while threatening to take matters into his own hands and, quote, behave as dictated by the conscience of a military officer. He subsequently demanded that Enver, at the very least, allow the German light cruiser to stage exercises near the mouth of the Bosphorus with several Ottoman destroyers. Here, Sushan hoped the ships could engage the Russian Black Sea fleet and bring the Ottoman Empire into the war. Enver promised to do what he could, on September 24th, Sushan was made vice-admiral and commander-in-chief of the Ottoman Navy. Yeah. Of the Ottoman Navy, wow. Yes. Two days later, yeah, two days later, Enver ordered the closing of the Dardanelles to foreign shipping without the consultation of his advisors. This had an immediate effect on the Russian economy, as nearly half the country's exports traveled through the straits. We're going to see a lot of the importance of, like, strategic straits in this war and the disruption mm-hmm. of them, which, I mean, we see it today, don't we? Right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a... Always a vulnerable choke point. So let's see. On October 9th, Enver Enver told Ambassador Wangenheim he had won the sympathy of the Minister of the Interior, Mehmed Talat, and President of the Chamber of Deputies, Halil Mentesha. And that he planned on securing the support of Jamal. If that, was, if that failed, he would provoke a cabinet crisis and create a pro-war government. After gaining Jamal's sympathies, the conspiring Ottomans informed the Germans that they would go to war as soon as they received the equivalent of 2 million lira in gold, money the Germans knew the Ottoman Empire would need to fund a war. The money was shipped through neutral Romania, and the last of it arrived on October 21st. Informants working for the Russian ambassador in Istanbul, Mikhail Nikolayevich von Giers, forwarded the information about the payments to Russian foreign minister Sergei Sazonov. Sazonov had suspected the Ottomans and Germans' intentions, and warned the Russian naval commanders in Sebastopol to be prepared for an attack. On October 21st, Admiral Kazimir Ketlinsky, assured the foreign minister that the Black Sea Fleet was, quote, completely ready for action. So on October 22nd, uh, Enver covertly presented a series of plans to Wangenheim on how to bring the country into the war. The Germans approved of an attack on Russian naval forces. At the last minute, Talat and Mentesha changed their minds and resolved that the Ottomans should keep the gold and remain neutral, Though Talat soon reverted to his old position, Enver gave up on trying to unify the government to pass a declaration of war and concluded that the Russians would need to be provoked in declaring war to instigate desirable action. He told the Germans this on October 23rd and assured them he would only need Minister Jamal's support to achieve his goals. The next day, Jamal, uh, oh sorry, the next day, Enver told Admiral Sushan he should take the fleet into the Black Sea and attack Russian ships if a, quote, suitable opportunity presented itself. Jamal then secretly ordered all Ottoman naval officers to strictly follow Sushan's directives. And then, I guess, they uh, Ambassador Von Giers from Russia forwarded one of his informants' predictions to Sazanov that the a- the attack would take place on October 29th. So, on the 27th, they went out to sea, the Ottomans, uh, under the guise of performing maneuvers, and... Enver, so they're really like they're all in on this fault like kind of like a false flag, like p- getting provoked kind of thing, uh, or maybe not false flag strictly speaking, but it it's like It's a it little bit of a
2: false of, flag, but it's also kind of like not like because they literally like were actually so intertwined, co- collaborating, that, yeah, like they were co- like literally like uh, Suhan was commanding Ottoman ships, like flying Turkish flags, but yeah he was it's not like you know it was false necessarily because he was actually licensed like a false flag with consent like
1: it's like they consent to like you can use our flag like sort of falsely yeah and it really was kind of
2: playing around with like we're identical with our ally like until we're not you know and it really shows like the i mean i guess the the sort of uh the discord within the the cabinet in terms of like you know those who opposed entry into the war and those who wanted to go along with it and also the the like you know the point that i made earlier like the pressure that germany was exerting to get Mm -hmm. the ottomans into the war and that in fact like there was like a little bit of like an implied threat you know like if you don't join us like that remark about i'll have to do what you know my conscious and military officer commands me to do like there's a little bit uh, of, like, a here, threat there, too. Like here, Here's uh, a
1: little bit more of a direct uh, way that Admiral Souchon, uh, or Souchon, I don't know, it sounds like a French name, but he's German, but it yeah. probably is yeah. French. But uh, he puts it a little more directly, because once they go out there, it says here that Enver had originally envisioned an encounter at sea in which the Ottomans would claim self-defense, but Admiral Souchon conceived a direct assault on Russian ports. He would later say his intention was, quote, to force the Turks, even against their will, to spread the war. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. I mean, even against their will, he was gonna. You know, I guess there was there was some doubts that, may within the Ottoman leadership, that maybe it was better to remain neutral. But um, Enver Pasha and the Germans, like, were definitely they were determined to make it happen um, and and make it basically you know remove any kind of option of staying neutral yeah. by having this uh, attack. So they were. They they planned. Um, let's see.
2: It was basically like a small scale coup within like the coup government. Like they already mm-hmm. had like couped, you know, and fought against the counter coup. You know, they already had couped Abdul Hamid. Then they, you know, suppressed or uh, came out on top of the counter coup. And that was yep. part of the reason for a lot of like, as you know, we talked about in past episodes, that was part of the reason for a lot of like anxiety on the part of like, you know, the British who previously had been kind of the ally or, you know, the the patron in a way of the Ottoman Empire. Like now it's like, OK, you know, yeah, Abdul Hamid, we constantly uh, talked about how he was a barbarian, but at least, you know, we could deal with him now. It's like this weird like kind of unaccountable like deep like deep state basically like like germanophile military officers yeah exactly like who the hell are these people so yeah it was
1: yeah they had their clown. Um, um so Ru- russian naval officers who i guess presumably like were given you know intel on this attack were under specific instruction not to fire first on the ottomans in the event of a confrontation the russian government wanted to make it clear to any third party that the ottomans would be ones to instigate uh, hostilities so these destroyers the muavanet and the gayret i hope i'm saying that right entered the harbor of odessa so they launched a torpedo uh, into the Russian gunboat Donets, quickly sinking it. The two destroyers proceeded to damage merchant vessels, shore installations, five oil tanks, and a sugar refinery. Uh, they conducted their raid earlier than Sushan had intended, and the Russians managed to radio a warning to Sebastopol. So by the time Yavuz, another ship, arrived, the coastal artillery was manned. So they got there and bombed the port of Sebastopol for 15 minutes. I guess they got some artillery fire launched back at them by that point. Oh, and then they went to Novorossiysk, and the berk Isatvet sent a shore party to warn the defenseless population of Novorossiysk before opening up with their guns, then joined by Medili, which had been busy laying mines in the Kerch Strait, fired 308 shells, sinking several Russian grain cargo ships and destroying about 50 Oil tanks. And then on their way back, they tried to attempt to cut Sebastopol's undersea telegraph cable with Varna, Bulgaria, but failed. So it was kind of a disappointing attack in terms of actually doing damage to the Russians, but it kind of like brought the Turks closer in, like to this, you know, this war effort and made it. Pretty much like kind of a ne- it, it caused a political crisis basically that made it sort of a fait accompli that the Ottomans were going to uh, jump in. So I guess the British believed that, you know, the the entire Ottoman government was conspiring with the Germans rather than like a faction thereof. Yeah.
2: And towards the end, like those who like kind of tried to put out a resistance, they kind of had to go along with it. Yeah. Even so that- those who sort of tried to hold out eventually like came around uh, and were kind of like persuaded and the the anti-interventionists continued yeah. was sort of defeated
1: and yeah. i i guess it also the result of this incident actually it's like they they actually didn't get russia to declare war on them but the british cabinet sent an ultimatum to the ottomans demanding that they remove admiral Sushan and his German subordinates from their posts and expelled Germany's military mission, which is about 2,000 men, and the Ottomans did not comply. So then on Halloween, October 31st, the uh, first Lord of the Admiralty, a, a chap that I think we've all heard of, Winston Churchill, acting on his own initiative, ordered British forces in the Mediterranean to commence hostilities against the Ottoman Empire. This was not carried out immediately, so the Ottomans were unaware of what had transpired and the Russian foreign ministry withdrew ambassador uh, Gears from Istanbul. So actually the British had decided, you know, basically Winston Churchill who was uh you know a younger guy in these in, in World War 1 but was still pretty like actually held some pretty like influential posts and was like at various points responsible for various like awful policies decisions. Yeah. During this war but he was definitely all about it. So then, let's see, the Ottomans apologized to Russia, but like Enver Pasha was like banking on the fact that the Russians wouldn't accept it and would declare war. Yeah. And then I guess, oh, interesting. So they were sending this this apology, but he wanted to fail. So just before the message was sent, Enver Pasha inserted a passage that accused the Russians of instigating the conflict. So it arrived in Petrograd. Uh, Foreign Minister Sazanov responded with an ultimatum, demanding that the Ottomans expel the German military mission, which the Ottomans rejected. And then finally, the British forces in the Mediterranean carried out Churchill's orders by attacking Ottoman merchant vessels off the port of Izmir. And that night, at an Ottoman cabinet meeting, the Grand Vizier's anti-war faction was forced to accept that the empire was at war and there was little they could do to avoid conflict. The Russians declared war on the Ottoman Empire on November 2nd, 1914. Admiral Andre Eberhardt immediately ordered Russia's fleet to retaliate against the Ottomans for the raid. On November 4th, a Russian task force bombarded Zonguldak. So then that's off. In the, on the yeah. next day, British warships bombarded outer forts in the Dardanelles. Two days later, the UK extended a declaration of war to the Ottoman Empire, as did France. Yeah, I guess, you know, many... It is.
2: It is uh, interesting tracking this particular incident, like how uh, this is definitely something in terms of the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and Germany. That's like a particular interest to me is like, you know, because a lot of prominent Islamicists, really, like a lot of like prominent Orientalists who work on Islam, like George Jacob, Theodor Noldeke. I hope mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing that right like you know the great sort of like uh Quran scholar uh Naldike- people who like are into like the history of the Quran probably like know that name like there's even like I remember like you know hearing in grad school, I forget exactly how the the joke is phrased. Like it's pithy when you know uh, you hear it the proper way, but it's like you know the main like Islamic language isn't you know Arabic. It's it's German, right? Because like in like academic you know like Euro American like edic you know Islamic studies. I see. It's uh you know g- the Germans really like are very prominent That's the biggest in that body like, of historical research. They're in a brilliant. Like even today, like uh, Angelica Neuwert is like one of the biggest figures like in the study of the quran you know german scholar so there's a big like legacy there and like german orientalism like is you know definitely like a big like uh, scholarly phenomenon and and like also it's kind of bound up with the broader project of like german identity i think i've mentioned this before like the whole like uh, arianism that would become like a big thing uh ideologically under the Nazis. Like, that relates to sort of the study of the Orient as well, particular India, right? So, yeah. like, uh, in the, you know, and, and uh, Iran and Central Asia. But a lot of those people also who were kind of interested in that issue, like, worked on Islam and, and on Arabic. And it's interesting, you know, even it was right to this incident, Wagenheim had uh, expressed uh, in these words, you know, even though uh, Enver and Jamal had already worked out an elaborate plan for Sushan's attack on Russia, the ambassador uh, summarized the situation in the following cautionary remarks. I have the impression that Enver Pasha himself doubts that the attack by Suchon with uh, the Turkish fleet will have any effect on Islam unless the advance against Egypt and the Caucasus is made simultaneously, which is impossible at the moment, but that he wants to fulfill all. I believe that he wants to fulfill all under all circumstances, the treaty concluded with us and the promise given to us. So it's funny that the Germans like really perceived a promise that the Ottomans entered the war and the Ottomans didn't necessarily see it that way. But more (laughs) notably, like, it's interesting how he says, like, I don't think this attack is going to have any effect on Islam. And that was, like, a big fixation of them, was, like, not just, like, the Ottomans, like, they saw them as, like, Islam, and that, like, one of their obligations to them was not just, like, you know, to enter the war, but to, like, raise the, like, Islamic movement, right? Like, promote (laughs) the Islamic movement. Raise the
1: banner of Tawhid everywhere yeah there was like the weaponization of uh jihad for like geopolitical for like third-party geopolitical interests like this is a well probably not the first time ever it was done in history but like it echoes like well it was a significant
2: uh, it was a significant change Because, you know, the traditional uh, a lot of like hay is made of this in the historiography of like the Ottoman entry in the World War One and the Ottoman Declaration of Jihad is that the traditional sort of uh, understanding of Jihad, which is kind of referenced in the title of our show, is that there's, you know, Jihad al-Akbar, you know, the greater Jihad and, Mm -hmm. you know, the lesser Jihad and uh, Jihad al-Akbar is like the internal Jihad. You know, the jihad mm-hmm. against the nafs or the right. jihad, you know, to like, you know, sort of against the self or to be like internally. Right. The um, internal spiritual struggle is the, yeah, bigger or the subliminal jihad. jihad is the greater jihad. Yeah. Right. Whereas the, mm-hmm. the lesser jihad is, you know, warfare. War. Yeah, the physical war. Right. But mm-hmm. this jihad was called like jihad al-Akbar al- in the declaration. Right. It was uh, indicated that this is a jihad al-Akbar that we have to uh, have to wage, right? So there's a lot of, like, readings of this. There's one interesting one that I read that I think it was by uh, Mustafa Aksakal. I'm not sure if I'm perhaps right, but yeah, Mustafa Aksakal suggested that, like, this was had kind of to do with the nationalization or the sort of uh, rise of nationalism and the sort of dissolution of the border between, like, the state and uh, the self, the idea that like this was, uh, and it was also declared to be like fard al-ain on like every Muslim. You know, usually this is thought of as like fard kiafa like you know, f- a fard uh, or an obligation of the community to wage jihad, right? Mm-hmm. Not of like every individual Muslim. And this is like not necessarily something that has observed like historically very often, like that every individual Muslim. Sometimes this is still seen, like you know, sometimes it still does come up if the Islam, if the Islamic state is under attack then it's uh, every Muslim is obligated to fight jihad. And we still see these kind of like, you know, discussions about the issue of jihad, even today, like in these modern mm-hmm. polemics about terrorism and uh, the, the place yeah. of Muslims I in European it. societies and things like, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, and you actually had like a lot of like a uh, snook, Horanje, who I think I, uh, Haranje, uh, yeah, Haranje, something like that. I looked up how to pronounce this name, but now like I forgot. It's like this weird Dutch name. <laughs> it's really, yeah. Like H uh, U R O N G J so yeah uh, maybe, yeah J is yeah i think that's what it is yeah i yeah. listened to like some uh, i guess maybe a descendant or a relative like uh, pronouncing that name like a couple of times and yet i still i'm not sure if i'm <laughs> saying it right but uh yes yeah, <laughs> in his pamphlet jihad made in germany He talked about, like, talking with, like, a, you know, a civilized Turk of a highly intellectual type. He says, uh, you know, the gentleman severely condemned religious fanaticism and wars motivated by political or economic interests. The destructive powers worse by technological progress, which, you know, probably this conversation did happen in some way, because it actually does kind of sound a little bit like Rashida's arguments, you know, and, uh, Mm. you know, it's not really uh, too outrageous to suggest that this, you know, is a sentiment that someone had. I'm sure a lot of people did. Haronya himself kind of did. Uh, but uh, this ethnographic view from afar, now I'm reading from a, a piece by uh, Leon Buskins on uh, this pamphlet, which immediately establishes the author's authority by autopsy, provides a strong critique of European culture on which uh, Snukharonya built his argument. Taking a detour should bring Europeans to reason, while the vignette at the same time proves that Snukharonya is right in his analysis that Muslims are capable of progress, that the violence of the erupting war is imposed on them from outside rather than being of their own making. So, yeah, he, uh, you know, talked about this this issue of of Jihad and, uh, you know, that this was kind of a uh, medieval concept that was being uh, brought back. And, like, I think that there was, like, a little bit of truth to this because it definitely is true that, like, Orientalists tend to, like, see... You know, it goes back even to like, you know, the, it goes back to medieval polemics, like medieval Christian polemics against Islam, you know, like they would always mm-hmm. see the Quran as being like lex saracenorum, you know, like the this law, like Muhammad's book of like brutal law and everything. And uh-huh. it's interesting to note, you know, when uh, Sharif Hussein established his little kingdom in the Hijaz one of the first yeah. things he did was like apply these like sharia punishments in a way that they really had not been for centuries right uh, yeah, in yeah, a exactly, and, like that yeah. was like really like horrifying to a lot of like you know ottoman jurists in terms of like how like because they they kind of discarded a lot of the fuck that had developed over over centuries and even the the british were uh, a little bit up- appalled, you know, and then it became part of this whole civilization polemic for them. But really, mm-hmm. like, through, like, and we, you can see this in the sort of attack on Waqf institutions as well, where they would say, oh, you know, this is a later innovation, and they would use the the Quran and say, so there's no precedent here to kind of attack this and sort of accuse the like Muslim institutions of not really following Islam. And that really is kind of the institutional purpose of Orientalism, as we've talked about. But, you know, uh, Snukharonya, you know, he's very much uh, an Orientalist and he was criticizing, uh, his his fellow Orientalists for kind of like leading the hapless uh, Muslims uh, by the nose, right? So I'll just read a little bit from the same mm-hmm. article. Until late October, the, uh, as we just talked about, the Ottoman political leadership had maintained an armed neutrality, hoping that Germany would win the war before it became necessary to actually join the fighting. After the German defeat on the Marne in mid-September, it was clear that the war on the Western Front would not be won quickly and German pressure on the Ottomans to join the war effort increased. By late October, the young Turk leaders in Constantinople... It, like shocks me that people still do this, but anyway. I guess yeah, yeah. Like, gave in. <laughs> they want it. They still want it. Um. And an Ottoman naval squadron was ordered to attack Russian naval installations in the Black Sea, even though this was deliberate provocation designed to bring about war with Russia and its allies. The Ottoman government officially maintained that it had been under attack and that its navy was surprised. I have heard the the criticism for me to read more slowly, but we just kind of summarize this. Some you know reading it quickly than I, I will. Yeah, read. yeah. Uh, right. Russian ships uh, that were mining the north entrance of the Bosphorus. This was a blatant lie but the war is presented to the Ottoman population as having been imposed on a country committed to maintaining peace. This is important, and not only in terms of propaganda. It was directly relevant to the nature of a possible jihad, as broad consensus had grown among Muslim scholars that in an offensive jihad, in other words, when the Islamic State is trying to enlarge the Dar al-Islam at the expense of the Dar al-Harb, the abode of war, the duty Mm. to fight was a communal one, that is, the Fard al Kiafa. Which could be devolved on the part uh, of the Islamic commu- on a part of the Islamic community, such as the army. On the other hand, the Islamic State, uh, if it was under attack, fighting was seen as an individual duty, farḍ uh, al-ain, and it was incumbent on every single Muslim to make a contribution. A month after the naval attack that led to the Russian declaration of the war, the Ottoman Sultan proclaimed a jihad. This proclamation was followed by a supporting legal opinion, a fatwa. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think we probably all know before, but just well, just so everyone knows, like a fatwa is just a legal judgment. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean a death Uh sentence. Like even a death sentence, it means killing authors. uh, Like yeah, exactly. That's like pretty much what fatwa means, like in the American like parlance for whatever reason after Salman Rushdie. But it just means like literally any legal judgment is a fatwa. But um, so. Yeah, a, a legal opinion from the highest religious authority, the Sheikh al Islam, by a proclamation to the army and navy by the Sultan and his war minister, for Pasha. In all these statements, the jihad was justified with the argument that the Islamic State, the Ottoman Empire, and the Muslim community had come under unprovoked attack from Russia, France, and Britain. The proclamation of the fatwa primarily targeted the Muslim subjects of France, Britain, and Russia in their colonies, calling upon them to resist their their oppressors. The fatwa also defined joining the fight against the Islamic State as a grave sin that would carry the severest penalty in the hereafter for any Muslim who did so. Of course, the Jihad declaration caused debate within the Islamic world. It was rejected by religious authorities in the different Entente colonies and the British-occupied Egypt, and either rejected or quietly ignored by important players in the Ottoman periphery, such as the Idrisids in Assur and the Hashemite Sharif of Mecca. It also immediately gave rise to a heated academic debate in Europe, right? This is the, you know, Orientalist argument, right? And mm-hmm. this is where Harunyi... Jumped in. The Leiden, still, like, you know, if you're reading any books in Islamic studies, where do they come from? Brill based in Leiden, right? The famous Leiden scholar Christian uh, Snook in January 1915 and entitled uh, Helig Ulug Made in Germany, Holy War Made in Germany. Uh Uh, The article was a vitriolic attack on uh, Snook's German colleagues. Uh, who before the war had also been close uh, friends, whom he accused of being the instigators of the Ottoman jihad proclamation. In Snook's eyes, calling for jihad was totally irresponsible and an appeal to an essentially medieval concept that threatened to undo the attempts to bring Muslim peoples into the modern world by reconciling their personal fate with the demands of the legal, rational state and secular society. Yeah, so he, uh, you know, said a, a bunch of interesting comments about, you know, like our uh, custodianship of them and how, you know, it's our <laughs> obligation to. It's etc cetera, etc cetera, is kind of like patronizing um like
1: a well-meaning orientalist like kind of getting offended yeah that
2: you can yeah, here's some some passages here you know he talks about becker's recent opinions endorsing the caliph and jihad are also in contrast to his earlier analyses of Turkey, expressed by him in former times of uh, quiet scientific work as Snekaronia documents amply. snokaronia shows himself surprised and disgusted by the fact that her best friend Germany is exciting her, that is Turkey, to universal religious war and presently turns over to her the Mohammedan prisoners who fought against Germany in order to submit them to a political religious conversion cure. He goes on to offer an explanation for this astonishing error in sound judgment. We can only attribute all this to the lamentable upsetting of the balance, even in the intellectual atmosphere, of what we used to call the civilized world. For in normal times, we know that the Germans are far too sensible and logical to digest the enormous nonsense that a thing, which in general will be considered as a shame for mankind and as a catastrophe for Turkey, can become good and commendable as soon as Germany places herself behind or beside the Crescent. Uh, Snakarone expects that German scholars will soon start to condemn this despicable game that is being played with the caliphate in the Holy War. He does not dare to foretell to what extent the call to war will be successful among Muslims, but is not too worried for the Dutch East Indies. The elite has been immunized against this political-religious mixture of deceit and nonsense by a conscious educational policy towards the native population, which history has entrusted to our care, in combination with our centuries-old guarantee of complete religious liberty for our Mohammedans. Yeah, I mean, this is—we won't they go into groomed, the uh, Dutch uh, colonialism um, in the East Indies, the, um... but yeah, the Dutch did not have to worry much about the peculiar sort of intellectual weapons which now, for the first time, are being put into circulation with the trademark "Made in Germany." Still. We keep hoping in the interest of humanity that Germany will before long withdraw the new product from the market. Snukharonia concludes his article in an authoritative style with a paragraph of cultural critique which echoes the ethnographic opening in which he presented his educated Turkish interlocutor criticizing religious fanaticism. Snukharonya discusses once again the doctrine of jihad, a medieval institution, which however forbids war against fellow Muslims. This view offers an important lesson for his times. The consideration of strife within the sphere of the community as impious provides an excellent foundation for the highest social civilization and is rather humiliating for the modern world, which is amazing. And I, I I think the article goes on to to discuss this. Yeah, I mean, I just want to read this as well. Uh, to modern yeah. states would have Mohammedans as subjects, protégés, or allies, the beautiful task is reserved of educating these and themselves at the same time to this high conception of human society, rather than leading them back for their own selfish interests into the way of medieval religious hatred, which they were just about to leave." <laughs> um, so oh no it's I guess like, uh,
1: he sounds very invested in like the Young Turks project of like modernizing and like with German assistance and like like no you're fucking it up That's kind of yeah kind of, like, of the or, energy like, i'm getting some here.
2: vision of that that he like could you know approve of i'm sure that he sees like you know the uh the dutch cust- custodianship of, of java and indonesia as being you know just so humanitarian great even though like all these people completely tried to like destroy uh the history of like the islamic uh culture of indonesia but anyway whatever the point is and then you know goldheiser and key were all like exchanging letters back and forth with these guys this a big you know fight amongst these people but what i think is so interesting that it's like it's such a great encapsulation of like the essence of of like uh orientalism as a scholarly project right because it's not just about like civilizing the the muslim which obviously is a heavy emphasis but it's also Mm -hmm. like we can learn from from them in a way you know they forbid Uh, attacking other muslims in their holy war and yet here we are like having a brother war you know and slaughtering (laughs) the greatest of the aryan race you know very
1: like like dances with wolves like avatar (laughs) shit like that kind of like condescending he really
2: was kind of like that um this guy in particular was kind of like a dances with wolves type of person um yeah uh uh, yeah dances with walks yeah yeah right um none of these people wanted to dance with the whack because it no, like prevented their capitalization of the land. But, exactly,
1: yeah, only their charities are allowed to yeah. exist. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I guess they were kind of a, uh, maybe, you know, right for the wrong reasons or something <laughs> with the wrong motivation, but still kind of like, right. Nonetheless, that like I mean, this might not map cleanly onto for a variety of reasons. Like this is probably not going to have like the stellar results that, I guess some of the German orientalists. Like, I mean, but I think
2: that they. Well, I guess yeah, they were like uh, he. He was right. He was like, I'm not sure what effect this is going to have, and like I think that you know they love us in our colonial possession, so it's not going to make them upset or anything. It's not going <laughs> to bother them. Uh, they would never rise up against us because uh, yeah. we're just so benevolent. But I think there was like a lot of fear you know there were all these like even in the 19th century in the british press for instance there were all these chutbah uh, scares where like because it was traditional for like at the beginning of like a chutbah during a congregational prayer to like you know give some praise to the caliph and to recognize the caliph the right so if mm-hmm. in british like colonial dominions uh, people would be recognizing, you know, the Ottoman sultan as Khalifa, islam then they would be like, Wah! Like, they would just freak out, and, like, it would be a whole thing. And then, you know, Orientalists, like that guy uh, Birdwood, who we actually read uh, in our psychedelics episode is, like, kind of an example of uh, sort of a, a precursor of the psychedelics discourse. They would swoop in and try to explain, you know, like, uh, first of all, like, yeah, they should stop doing that, but also, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like that, that... Uh, that big of a deal yeah you know he was a big like player during this time as well and like a, a significant supporter of uh the uh, sharifian uh caliphate uh you know the, sh- the sharif of mecca being oh, yeah. you know the, the yeah. successor to the caliphate as well but well but, yeah, yeah
1: that's a, that is one a uh, prominent individual i think uh we referenced earlier who uh did not like full-throatedly endorse this jihad uh the sharif of mecca and uh no he with, with, uh with, with, he did consequences to follow basically
2: yeah in fact yeah there's a an interesting like letter and it's a weird like invocation and we see kind of the uh like i mean ibn tamiyah did have a little bit of popularity in like ottoman intellectual circles for sure so there was like some precedent there but it's really interesting to see like the emergence of like what we would recognize as like wahhabism like today like during this time mm-hmm. like uh for instance like uh, after this call for for jihad, which, you know, yeah, as as we said, like, I think that Europeans were much more, like, worried about it, and this was, like, this This goes to show, like, the fact that the Germans were so, like, obsessed with it, you know, and, like, they're yeah. like, you gotta put out the call to Jihad, and, like, you know, all this stuff, and they're like, yeah, the Muslims are gonna get, like, and, you know, it, when it didn't work, they still thought that they could, like, make this great, like, Islam- like this Islamic horde be, like, unleashed somehow, like, for yeah, instance, like... Yeah, you just, like,
1: mash that jihad button and they'll just, like, all show up, like, ready, to- with scimitars, ready to fight, like, that's all yeah. you have to do. Yes. It's uh, an interesting thing. I wonder, like, yeah, the extent to which they were obsessed. Like, wonder if there's, like, a parallel in World War II with, like, like, monitoring, like, Himmler's, like, bizarre, like, occult experiments being, like, oh, my God, like... I guess it's sort of what Gravity's Rainbow is about. It's but it was like, kind you know of like, like, like an Unanurba thing in that where too. it's like intellectual,
2: yeah. like the Haronya, uh, like calling it intellectual warfare, like intellectual, the use of intellectual weapons, wasn't too far off. Like you know, for instance, uh, this is from Ludke. I think we mentioned him a little bit oh, about yeah, yeah. earlier. He was Lodke. cited right after they declared the Jihad al Akbar, the the Great Jihad, mm-hmm. it was proclaimed in the the Fatih Sultan Mosque in Istanbul. Soon afterwards, reports by German diplomats from the Ottoman provinces painted. Uh, a less rosy picture. Most Ottoman Muslims reacted with indifference to the proclamation. There is no indication at all of a global Muslim uprising on behalf of the Ottoman Sultan Caliph. Clearly, the proclamation and the luster of the caliphate had been insufficient to produce the German desired results. Max von Oppenheim, you know, who was one of the main sort of Orientalists uh, working uh, to accomplish this at their, uh, you know, intelligence office for the Easter. Uh, st- uh, style für den Orient, you know, that was their main sort of uh, propaganda oh, nachrichten outlet. Nachrichtenstyle,
1: yeah, 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 that, that's, uh, uh, yeah. There's some uh, words in common with the BND. In there, uh, <laughs> that, uh, yes. we look at it. Yeah, so if it,
2: if an Ottoman proclamation failed to produce a jihad, a protracted German propaganda campaign wouldn't due course lead to success. So that's <laughs> what the Nachrichten Stele <laughs> for They the got North their East ISIS was.
1: bot accounts like working over exactly time, and <laughs> <Yeah>. social media <laughs> memes all the time. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So but, that was what, November fourteenth that was announced nineteen fourteen. So in the yeah. in the opening months by Mehmed V, who was the Sultan now, the last Sultan as it turns out. But like, his power was... Basically, you know, curtailed very by this point, right? Very
2: heavily curtailed, yeah. Um, it, it was. He didn't have
1: the riz that previous sultans no, uh, had, like when announcing a jihad. So, it, like, no, and a that's why it's like hit.
2: that's what I think kind of failed to resonate because there had already been this huge, as we talked about in past episodes, this huge burst of like enthusiasm for this like new, you know, Ottomanism, or at least like this, you know, uh, great fanfare over it. Not everyone received it optimistically, as I think we'll talk about later. Like, you know, in the case of Nablus. I think that's an interesting case study, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the context of World War One. But the you know, like there had been this big hubbub about this, and now like they're kind of falling back on Islam to mm. say, like, you know, but you just like deposed the Sultan. You just like were constantly talking about how he was a traitor and like now like exactly. you have this puppet guy. Yeah, and I think Uh, Relative to the point I was making before, on 23rd November, this is from a a different, this is from a Lutka's article. On 23rd November, the Ottoman authorities sent a message to Abdulaziz Ibn al Saud you know uh, uh it's, yeah, not of the, not uh, the, one that of the famous house yes uh, right. of saud
1: yeah that's yes. right this is when we, we see some recognizable names start yeah, entering exactly. the uh, stage
2: and this like his reply to, to them is like really you know it's yeah it ain't nothing new like asking him to help the ottoman jihad and refrain from any clashes with uh saud ibn abdul aziz the emir of the house of rashid ibn hail abdul azid ibn al saud had cut a, who had cut a deal with the ottoman government immediately before the great war had no such desire to cooperate with this request, however. In fact, a rather long fatwa was issued by Sheikh Suleiman ibn uh, Sihman on uh, 22nd June 1915. Uh, which provides insight regarding uh, the Wahhabi reaction to the Ottoman Jihad. The following quote, question was put before Sheikh uh, Suleiman ibn uh, Sihman, a leading Wahhabi religious authority and a scholar who had a major influence. This is like the, you know, the precursor to Islam QA, like literally, you know, it's like a question. You know, he was a scholar who had a major influence over Abdul Aziz ibn al Saud. What is your opinion? May God magnify your virtue. Concerning the Turkish state and the Christians, may God curse them all. Which of them is greater in unbelief, and which of the two is preferred to support over the other? Provide us a fatwa that you may be recompensed. May God grant you paradise. mean, So this basically, literally sounds like an Islam QA question, but, uh, and the response <laughs> does as well. There's no doubt that those apostate Turkish forces, al Aslakir, al turkiya and others, are greater in unbelief than the Jews and the Christians, as one learns from Sheikh al-Islam, Like, not even, you know, it's in brackets. Like, not even needing to say Ibn Taymiyyah. Sheikh al-Islam's words, and as he explained the matter in the case of the Nusayris, it is known that they, the Turkish forces feign Islam, make the proclamation of faith, offer the Friday and congregational prayers, and appoint qadis when they overcome a territory. Nevertheless, the Sheikh al-Islam's, Ibn Taymiyyah's, words apply in their case. As you can see, and as the Sheikh al-Islam, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, also made clear in the 10th level of what he said concerning God's words. The places of worship belong to God, so call not along with God upon anyone. Quran 72.18 As for which of the two groups, the Turkish state of the Christians, it is preferred to support over the other. Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah has reported in his Jawab al-Sahih, Concerning God's words, the Romans have been vanquished in a nearer part of the land, and after their vanquishing, they shall be the victors in a few years. To God belongs the command before and after, and on that day the believers shall rejoice in God's help. God helps whomever, uh, whomsoever he will. Uh, Quran 30, 1-5. If you understand this, then it ought to become clear to you that these Turks, even if they make the proclamation of faith, are more severe in unbelief in the Christians on account of their apostasy from Islam and greater in harm against the Muslims and the Christians, as the Sheikh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah explained. Again, not even sure if Ibn Taymiyyah would agree with that, given his, like, you know, complicity with the Mamluks, who he, like, greatly criticized, but he can, t- like, often, you know, offered them support as well, especially in, like, their geopolitical struggles. But there's a bit of a digression, mm-hmm. but you can definitely see, like, how the especially like you know in this context the sort of wahhabi or like the sort of uh saudi flavor of salafism kind of taking shape under the auspices of the uh entente powers in a way
1: yeah yeah like uh, always surprisingly compatible like with uh like particularly the british they've had such a cozy relationship and uh, another like much more recent like you're talking about earlier like something that People falsely assume is like sort of unchanged or like from thousands of years ago, but actually I mean not uh, even remotely, uh, yeah. Yeah, like you know, Wahhabism basically is a tendency was what, the late eighteenth century when it sort of came about. Yeah. Right. Like really the nineteenth century kind of took hold.
2: Well, yeah, this is like when it was actually like starting to gain like a a foothold, like before it Mm -hmm. was like this, like kind of like deviation that everyone hated and that everyone wanted to stamp out and was, you know, like, and that's the thing. Like people see this as people look at like, this is kind of like ISIS is Islamic very Islamic. Exactly. Like, what like what do you, you know, mean by that when and it's like, kind the of type... like type Yeah. It's it's kind of like I mean it's it's funny, you know, in especially in the context of thinking about how uh Saudis how they are today, but the, the point I'm making basically is that like it's kind of like saying like the Puritans are Christian, like very Christian or whatever. It's like okay, exactly. yeah, in exactly. a way, but like to a Catholic, it's like these freaking people are like, you know, like the people who have like, you know, what normal Christianity had been for most of history. Yeah. Like Oliver Cromwell, like doesn't seem like, you know, he's actually like upholding the tradition of No, for he's sure. He's a radical, like he's changing things. In I've like, actually you
1: know, noticed that sort of, the, you know, yeah. I, I noticed that uh, just as, as I know that like a lot of Christians or like, you know, even people that like leave some kind of like toxic evangelical American Christianity you know and like rebel against it or whatever like they refer to it as christianity and being a christian which like as you know basically like a lapsed catholic like i i cannot but take like slight umbrage with or like take slight offense like excuse me like wait wait hold on like we're talking about christ like christians doing a lot of work here like yeah are we just talking about like and, and cuz the people that like leave often they associate whatever weird-ass MKUltra, like, pyramid scheme, like, strip mall version of, like, Protestant Christianity they were raised with is Christianity. And it's, like, wait, and it's, like, so I, like, the idea, so that's mixed in with the idea that just, like, I don't know, like, Jesus was, like, a, a, a holy figure or, like, the golden rule is good. It's, like, all that stuff is lumped in with a very specific expression of it that is very, like, historically contingent. And actually, like, I mean, you could even argue that, like, Protestantism is still catching up because it's only, like, 500 years old. And, you know, like, Orthodoxy and Catholicism are almost 2,000 years old. And, like, they're still kind of the new kid on the block. But especially, like, the post, like, you know, uh, mid to late 20th century, like, new versions of, like, evangelical Christianity that dot the landscape today... Like, it's, I don't know, it's like weirdly, like, it's like yeah. a, doing like a weird, like, in inverted Graham Wood thing of like, oh, we're just Christians. Like, yeah, and then even well, people, people who hate them think they're just, that's what Christians are. It's like, I don't think, I don't think they deserve to get that title of just Christian. Like, <laughs> the Christian, like that, that, that's like an umbrella category.
2: Yeah, the Christian angle on all this, by the way. Is really, but yeah, like to your, it's very interesting that like you know the the role of Christians in, in this landscape, which you know, uh, or of Christians in in the Ottoman domains, which I think we'll talk about later. But no, I think your point is like very correct. It kind of is like how you know you hear like uh, anti-Muslim people be like, uh, "ISIS are the true Muslims." Like it, there's no yeah. such thing as a, you know, either they don't know their religion or they're ice, you know. And it's like it's it's kind of the same version of that where it's like yeah i like all christianity is evil because like you're still kind of reproducing that same logic of like you know the pope is the antichrist or whatever or like etc like it's taking the like
1: the when someone tells I you who you are fight, believe but, them to like you know, too far of a, a logical extreme of like just because somebody says there's something then you need to shitcoat the entire like much broader tendency of that thing Because this person, like, claims they, you know what I mean? Like, we have to accept the labels that people give themselves, like, without any kind of...
2: You know, something, like, that's important to emphasize is that, like, everybody, like, in a way, like, all Muslims are Salafis. Because all Muslims, like, always appeal to, like, the pious predecessors or the past or, like, tradition in some way, you know? Like, whether, like, you know, for instance, if you're modern, contemporary Salafis, like, generally, like, are anti-Sufi, you know, they oppose Sufism, something that Ibn Taymiyyah didn't believe in, you know, he was a member of a Sufi order. Ibn Taymiyyah mm-hmm. criticized Sufi practices. I think we talked about this uh, maybe with Tom before, but he never, you know, he was never like against uh, to, to Sufi itself. Right. He just, like, criticized, like, innovators, Muptadis, right? Mm -hmm. So people who were innovating and, and, like, he wanted people to get back to the real uh, Salaf. And all Sufis always saw, like, you know, the Sufism as something that the Prophet practiced, right? So it's not, like, it's just a different Salafi discourse. Like, someone who I think is worth, like, mentioning in, like, you know, in in this context, like, is Abdul Qadr al-Jaza is kind of in a slightly, or uh, kind of known as Amir a al-Dukhader, slightly different context, you know, from the 19th century. But I think we mentioned before the sort of riots in Damascus, right? And he was someone who kind of intervened to protect Christian minorities. Um, this in, isn't
1: like the 1830s, 1840s, uh, the, the, like the Maronite kind of riots? It was or in that...
2: the 1860s that uh, oh, okay, he, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he had really been like a big opponent of, of French colonialism in, in Algeria. But, you know, I just mentioned him because, uh, you know, not only is he a great Muslim hero and icon, but he was someone who was in many ways like associated with the sort of Salafi movement in its embryonic stages, but also was like a great like, you know, devotee of Ibn al-Arabi, someone who like, Your average like Salafi like online poster today would be like you know he's a kafir he's like the worst thing you know like (laughs) a a complete apostate etc etc so you can kind of see how these things like ossify like over time and I I just find that letter to be very interesting because it's it's so much like I guess heavy for lack of a better term like discourse that like you you hear today those exact people who were like decrying the the like the Murtad Turks for making an alliance with the Christian powers, like they were shaking hands with the British, like you know, secretly too. So,
1: oh, yes, they yeah. were, yes, they were increasingly. Yeah. I just want to note, I noticed this, I hadn't noticed it in any of the books we'd read so far. But let me see what I don't know what source this is from. This is from Nicole 2008, The Ottomans Empire Faith. Apparently. On November 11th, like right around the time the Jihad was being, you know, written up and declared, a conspiracy was discovered in Constantinople against Germans and the CUP party, the Young Turks party, in which some of the CUP leaders were shot. That followed the November 12th revolt in Adrianople against the German military mission. On November 13th, a bomb exploded in Enver Pasha's palace, which killed five German officers but failed to kill Enver Pasha. On November 18th, there were more anti-German plots. Committees formed around the country to rid the country of those who sided with Germany. Army and Navy officers protested against the assumption of authority by Germans. On December 4th, widespread riots took place throughout the country. On December 13th, an anti-war demonstration was led by women in Kanak and Erzurum. Throughout December, the CUP dealt with mutiny among soldiers in barracks and among naval crews. The head of the German military mission, Field Marshal von der Goltz, survived a conspiracy against his life. I hadn't read a lot about the sort of like anti German conspiracies that popped off at the beginning of the war. Most of the narratives were like basically that the anti war faction was sort of cowed into like obe- just going along with everything. But I guess there was some, I don't know, intrigues around trying to assassinate enver pasha and i guess maybe we should note like the three pashas were like the collective leadership the young turk leadership of the ottoman empire at this time we'll probably mention them more as like kind of the war goes on but there's enver pasha jamal pasha and uh,
0: uh,
2: talat
1: oh talat talat and jamal pasha were the other two and um yeah so they you know these are the german trained military officers that came to power and Enver Pasha I think was the minister of war. Yeah. So he had a, like a, a a tight, you know, command over like the military apparatus and uh, other things and they kind of split the ministries between them. And Jamal Pasha, he's going to become important I think in the subsequent chapter because he was the one that had control over Ottoman Syria and Palestine basically. Mm-hmm. And actually his behavior during the war yeah. Would be you know incredibly impactful in terms of like like lighting a tinderbox you know and causing this thing to like slip out of control and like the final death blows like through his reprisals against uh you know
2: yeah in our next proper like four five six hour recording session I definitely mm-hmm. want to read some of like the diaries of uh, Arab Ottoman soldiers because you definitely get like their perceptions of uh, Jamal Pasha and they're not like super yeah like there's a lot of uh, you you definitely get the sense of like his his impact as well as in the general kind of historiography of the the conflict yeah
1: definitely definitely i mean and the, you know there's unlike the western front where it's like it settles into this immobile trench warfare kind of stalemate thing that goes on for years I think the Ottoman Front's, like, somewhat more dynamic. I mean, especially so after 1916. But you see kind of their attempts to go toe-to-toe with the British. Also, I mean, the British, like, we're, we're. I think next time we're going to talk a lot about how the British end up playing this war, you know. And uh, I guess they come out, just from a psychotic, you know, power perspective, they end up playing it quite well. But it's not... Again, we get into the kind of history being a jump ball situation where nothing is really certain throughout the four years of like World War One in terms of how it's all going to shake out which empires are going to live and which empires are going to die. And especially the fate of the Ottoman Arab regions, it's not really clear, you know, there there's a lot of different ways it could go. And that's when we see like the intrigues reach their their fever pitch of uh, various conspiracies to break up the Ottoman Empire.
2: To, yeah, to sort of sum up what you said, I think actually there's another great quote from uh, Rashid Radeh uh, where he was kind of talking about, w- reflecting after the war later on, about comparing the British and the German approaches to the war. And uh, he had an interesting kind of riff on the concept of takwa, or like kind of, it's usually translated as like piety. It's a very difficult term to to translate, some like God fearingness. But like, uh, I know literally. about it from
1: Al Al Takwa Bank, which was Al Qaeda's bank, like in Switzerland <laughs> in the nineties. Um, uh-huh. Well, it's a good name yeah. for a
2: bank because it has to do with like protectiveness, right? Like ah, I uh, see, guarding I see. oneself. I Like you fidelity. Know? Yeah. Ex- like yeah. Exactly. Like exa- okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's like about like sort of guarding oneself, right, and guarding one's like, uh, you know, being fearful of God and like being protective. Of, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does have. Some kind of relationship with Wara. But yeah, so he actually kind of had a expanded definition of this term where it's not just about many people think of Takwa as just, okay, you know, you're performing your religious obligations, etc. Like he's like the scholars of today have, you know, come to understand Takwa in this way. Like me having Taqwa means, you know, being religious basically. But he was like Takwa is a much broader concept where the Germans had military taqwa where they were mm. protective of their military prowess. But the British had like political and diplomatic talk and Mm. the Germans were able to protect their technology and protect their like strict, like military sort of like technological strategic advantage, but they were not a, they they, they weren't able to protect themselves from their internal conflicts with like Mm. German socialists, et cetera. And also like to stop, the intrigues with the the arabs uh and in the ottoman sphere that the british you know performed and that was where the british held really yeah
1: and i guess the british like you know i think it might have been sharif hussein who said a little bit later that uh, he had a sense or maybe antonius talking about him that he always had a high regard for how the british handled themselves diplomatically around the world compared to all the other european powers like he thought very incorrectly uh he thought that the british were like the most upright and trustworthy and like professional and like straight shooting of all the and like very like sophisticated and attentive to like their diplomatic efforts and whereas the other ones were like much shadier and like you, you really couldn't trust them he thought that the and i think that might go to the uh the quality of the British present self-presentation of yeah. themselves, as we all right. know it's about like, Oh, the British, like, you know, yeah. like, it seems like he uh, bought oh, into Cap, it like, like, a bit more, yeah, but yeah, they're like, good at psyoping people with those accents. They are. Yeah.
2: It's not too different from how like Rashid Radez saw it as like, that's like the area where they, Excel, And at this point, you know, he had the, the privilege of like retrospect, right? He wasn't always, you know, he didn't always, uh, he wasn't always necessarily wise to what the British were, were plotting, but as we'll, as we'll see, I think, later on. But yeah, like with the, with the advantage of, of hindsight, he was uh, was able to see that like what they really were great at, they were good at diplomacy. It doesn't mean they actually were upright, but they were great at manipulating people. Like that was effect, really what they, they were, were amazing. Effective, at. And, yeah. And, um, he he compared them to like a waterfall that crashes rocks against each other, uh, with the other <laughs> nations being rocks. Um, wow, yeah. wow.
1: I mean, so then I think it's perhaps a little bit fitting or not surprising that the ultimate uh, patron of that other great PR institution of the early 20th century, political Zionism, would finally find their you know their champion, their soul their soul brother uh in the british empire but we're not quite there yet uh we still have some military campaigns and some intrigues and some revolts to get to yeah but this uh, is
2: the this is really the bridge between the ottoman context that we've been talking about up till now and like that new reality of the sort of midwifed emerging israel in the british mandate that comes to exist after world war one but this is the lead up to that and it's so it's definitely a, a super to important of, yeah. uh phase though it's like in because once the mandate i mean you know they're both kind of phases of development uh leading up to like the nakba but uh yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is definitely an important time and an interesting one for sure
1: i think i think yeah yeah in this uh next chapter coming up where I think we're gonna talk about probably talk about a few of the military battles and like how things stood or just summarize those things like Gallipoli and like the uh the Mesopotamian campaign and blah 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 but then really the events leading up to the Arab Revolt in nineteen sixteen are yeah. like of crucial importance. And then those uh those great diplomatic inventions of the British, Sykes Pico And the Balfour Declaration, and also the McMahon (coughs) was it the McMahon Hussein correspondence as well? Yeah,
2: that's good to read. That's from yeah. Antonius has that like reproduced, right? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Antonius does a pretty good. And I think we'll probably read some corrective, some context about like more about just like uh, putting him like his perspective as like an Arab Orthodox, you know, Palestinian, like in perspective. But he gives a pretty good rundown of the corruption and the lies and the double dealing of all of these diplomatic overtures both secret and public that the british were engaging in on multiple fronts throughout the war to basically kind of you know cleave like chop up the ottoman empire and yeah. distribute it amongst its allies and uh, that is that's absolutely essential to like talking about like the next hundred years of Palestinian history yes. um, and Zionist history as well. Cause Zionism goes from being a fringe movement to being the bell of the ball in a few short years yeah. and a whole new world of possibilities become possible that uh were merely a dream before that. Yeah. But uh that's the, uh, I'm excited to get into that stuff cuz I think that's it's very vital for everybody to Yeah, the I just Mesopotamian get it as a campaigns view. are interesting
2: too. Like, you know, you mentioned that like it is interesting that talking about the Ottoman like call to to jihad, one of the it's very very interesting that like the Shia listened and they actually were like okay, like we're going to set our differences aside and we're going to defend like you know the ottoman state and not give in to like these weird intrigues meanwhile Mm. you have like the sort of like super duper sunni you know wahhabis and like this is actually still a thing that muslims fight about is like the fact that the wahhabis were just like killing other muslims um and Uh, now you know they'll always
1: be not exactly being team players yeah, yeah, you could see you could see that uh in more recent decades, yeah. including right now, like how uh they could be more yeah, team players maybe. Yeah. How, <laughs> and and
2: like and who is fucking fight, you know, it's crazy, right? It's very interesting. Like you know, there really ain't nothing new in this way. Like who are the, no, the biggest
1: people? Well yeah, who's up? all who's all banding together? It's the like all Houthis the Shias, Shias mostly. And, Iran. Yeah, which and is, the Syrians are very, very interesting. Yeah. So they're willing to work with Hamas, a Sunni group, but then the big Sunni dog in Saudi Arabia is like, uh, like you know, uh, yeah, like about to sign a deal with Israel, like and you know, even, not exactly. Even
2: Erdogan, who you know is kind of like you know made a little bit of overtures like towards like uh, you know Islam, you know, kind of definitely. Yeah. Uh, leaning back into that a little bit after like Turk and the sort of uh, Turkish like quote unquote war of independence and all that stuff like uh, mm-hmm. that, I think we'll we'll touch on that a little bit because that emerges right out of World War uh, World War One. It's it's interesting to, to talk about like the the the. The change in turkey that, that happened at the at the tail end just kind of to oh yeah it's like know.
1: we've like one thing you don't hear a lot about is like how they they did try to take turkey like also yeah. like it's not like they were yeah. like okay turkey you can be your own independent country no, no. they tried to take that shit and then, like it failed no. so they, and they weren't is, able to uh, yeah and
2: then that led to like yeah the you know the, the horrible bloodshed of like you know a lot of turk and all the yeah the, mm-hmm. just the, the turkish republic and everything But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, even Erdogan, who is, like, kind of, you know, definitely signaling towards – definitely tries to, you know, leverage a slam for political capital. Yeah. You know, where is he? Mm. Where is he He talked some trash
1: early on, but I feel like he's been quieter as of late. Everyone talks some
2: trash. The Saudis talk trash, too, but –
1: Yeah, it's just – you hate to see it, but – Yeah, hate to
2: see it, for sure.
1: But, yeah, the idea of, you know – I think it would be fascinating to really get into the the weeds of how, you know, an Arab revolt backed by foreign, intel, you know, foreign forces, you know, which hypothetically, and a lot of people participating thought, like, would lead to a united Arab country, you know, of all the yeah. Arabs together, uh, gets uh, turned into something very different, a sliced and diced plot of real estate that you know is is almost uh, maybe by design set against itself from day one to prevent unity and the rupture between the turkish and arab sort of you know civilizations or whatever um and the dreams of like a you know a dual crown kind of neo-ottoman thing just going down the drain um yeah but there were a lot
2: uh, of alternative visions that could have been better than what ended up being totally totally it's like now seeing unfold
1: well you know it echoes another thing not the first time but it kind of echoes like you know the breakup of the soviet union a little bit where you know there were all these pressures for like changing and reform and like rising kind of sectarian instability and then Like, in in a fit of almost mania, uh, they broke it all up. But then, like, you look back, like, 25 years, 30 years, and you're like, "Mm," like, I don't know. Like, was just, like... uh, There could have been a different way, maybe, to do that. Like, that just did like... Even if you didn't love it, like... uh, I think, like, a majority of, like, people that were... At least were alive back then, now feel like... Oh, they wish it hadn't, like, all just broken up in, like, a mafia orgy of, like, violence and, like economic devastation with all the little powers on the outside trying to like chopping up yeah. into as little pieces as possible so they can yeah which is you why know, i totally think that, like some it. of
2: those nabluses you know uh, maybe bourgeois uh, as they were you know they might have had a little bit of a point like they weren't some of the
1: secret societies yeah
2: know? um you know the ones who were kind of like eh, you know like bring back uh, abdul hamid you know like maybe some of those people like you know weren't or who preferred him to the, you know, the the committee for union and progress. Uh, they weren't well, necessarily as we can see, you know, wrong union and in progress. Their uh, yeah, it's but the, eye uh, the beholder. But speaking of the Soviet Union, like the the Bolshevik Revolution is an interesting sides like side story in this. Like I was reading about how like you mm-hmm. know one guy, one of these uh, diaries of like uh, these Arab soldiers was actually like a prisoner in like a POW camp in Siberia. And, like, oh, wow. y- he, like, published a magazine there called, like, The Camel of, of Allah. And, like, it's, like, a, the icon was, like, a camel, like, marching through, like, the Siberian snow. It was, like, you know, wow. like, uh, yeah, there's, like, a, yeah, it's all this interesting, like, weird, like, kind of history. But um, a lot of, like, Turkish POWs, like, v- ended up joining, like, you know, like, Turkish Red Brigades, like, after. Because they were just all released after the Bolshevik Revolution. They're, like, go, you are free. Like, oh, and, sick. All you know, right. A lot of the Arabs, like, ran home. Muslim, go, like, man, like, throw off yeah. your chains. Yeah, like. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the Arabs like immediately like went home to like go try to fight for like their homelands. But a lot of like Turks like stayed in the area to like join communist forces.
1: Um, Yeah. That's I mean, yeah, that, that in itself is like a huge twist, like ending the world war one. Like there's so many twists at the end of it that like you wouldn't exactly uh, expect from the outset. Like, you know, even like the Ottoman empire getting involved. Like I think their war aims when they started out, or their aspirations were for one to we forget I don't, we haven't talked about it so much yet, but like the Suez Canal, which yeah. you know was built in the 19th century, huge British strategic huge, interest, and they basically yeah. taken over, eventually, essentially taken over Egypt in the late 19th century from the yeah. Ottomans, and oh, yeah, you totally. know the Ottomans wanted it back, um, and so that was a huge concern of the British, of they had a huge anxiety over disruption or like losing the Suez, uh, canal. So, you know, they, so there, there is a possibility that, of course they had lost Libya to the Italians and pretty much all the Balkans and Greece, uh, in the, like by the time of the first Balkan Wars, but they thought that maybe they could get back. I think Egypt was the big prize that they thought if we can get this back, then we can sort of reestablish our connection to like North Africa and, blah 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 and then also have this like powerful control over you know global trade and also i think another thing another thing i want to look into a little more next time was you know this is also the first war where i feel like the importance of oil as a geostrategic asset becomes very important because there was mm-hmm. the Anglo Persian Oil Company in Basra you know now mm-hmm. in Iraq yeah. um that was like fueling the british war effort and so that was also a huge concern of theirs was basically uh keeping control over that port and getting the oil out and because if the ottomans came in and like shut it all down then uh yeah basically that i think that was the genus of like the mesopotamian campaign was like to secure which they did i think pretty quickly secure their like oil production facilities but you can see you know the concerns of a global You know maritime empire and uh like those choke points of like shipping lanes and oil production and in this read it's funny because we're literally dealing with that you know we're recording this in uh january 14th you know so there's just been bombings in yemen and the Gulf of Aden, and, mm. you know, the Houthis and all that stuff. And th- those same concerns were, like, actually, you know, we'll get into it a little bit, but the different tribes that occupied that same region, and, and Yemen, as uh, Antonius calls it, you know, oh, yeah. that was oh, a concern yeah, of both the, yeah. the, the Brits and the Ottomans of the disruption to, like, the Red Sea shipping route and to the Suez Canal. And, you know, if you had a hostile faction, you know, that's able to conduct piracy or, like, Fire artillery on ships or whatever you know it could uh bring the global like you know supply chain to its knees and uh that becomes a big factor but uh we will get into it i think in uh in our next chapter very soon but should we call it there for now yeah okay